from Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. A miner was about three months' wages. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you not, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Thanks for having us. It's, uh, it's great. It's so encouraging, I find, to go across different cities uh, and see different churches just faithfully uh, sharing the gospel in their communities. I think that's one of the joys of getting to go somewhere where you don't know anyone, but actually be brothers and sisters all the same. So thank you for having us. I wonder what the last time was when you had an expectation. You had these high hopes for something and you're really, really looking forward to it. I think for me it was Christmas 2020. We had months of lockdown, months of restrictions. Uh, you saw the, the devastation of the pandemic itself and then the restrictions on top of that. Um, it was pretty brutal. But we had Christmas to look forward to. You know, a few days off where we got to be with our loved ones with, without having to worry whether we're breaking the rules or not. But the reality was pretty different, wasn't it? Just a couple of weeks before, the restrictions changed and we had two days, maybe even less than that, and then it was back to the same old lockdown. Our expectations and our hopes of what the future was going to be wasn't quite accurate. And confused expectations is what brings Jesus to tell this parable to his followers. We've just mentioned Christmas, but here we're on the brink of Easter. Jesus has just been in Jericho, and he's had this amazing experience with Zacchaeus, a tax collector, who repented and came to faith and is now following Jesus. It's it's a beautiful episode. But now the camera is panning out and you can see Jerusalem looming in the distance. Look at verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. This is their expectation. Jesus 
had done incredible things in front of their eyes. He'd healed people, cast out demons, forgiven sinners, taught many, and restored the lost. So we can probably forgive these followers for thinking the kingdom is about to arrive. It's all going to happen when we get to Jerusalem. But this is the balance they find themselves in, both now and back then. There's, a, there's an already to the kingdom, that is true. But there's also a not yet. The kingdom, for an, another word you could use for it, has not yet been consummated. Jesus hasn't returned to rule and restore all creation and destroy death and sin forever. Jesus started that on his earthly ministry. But he had to depart and then come back to complete it. And so Jesus is trying to correct their expectations. They are expecting him to lead an army raise up an army, go into Jerusalem, defeat the Romans, and to start a new Jewish kingdom that would rule. But that's not what is about to happen. And this parable is the blueprint for what will be happening to Jesus, the king, both in Jerusalem at this point in Luke's story, but also in this age that we find ourselves in now, between the cross and his return. And so let's get into the parable itself. So he begins this story in verse 12 about a nobleman going to a foreign land to be made king and to then return. He's not becoming a king in that faraway country. What happened back in those days was you would have to go to Rome because you're under the Roman Empire. You'd have to go to Rome, be uh, coronated as king, and then you'd be able to return to your land and take control. This king didn't get a letter in the post saying that he was a descendant of some long-lost uncle and he was taking a kingship somewhere. No, he has to go and then return to take his control. And for the Jews at the time, this was recent history. We all know King Herod, the one who tried to kill Jesus as a child. But this is his son who was in charge at the time, a man called Archelaus. And verse 14 is exactly what happened to him. He went to go to Rome to be made king but the Jews didn't want him to be king, and they sent a delegation after him saying to, to, to the Roman rulers, we don't want this man to be king. And so Jesus is using this story in recent history to teach his followers about the nature of his kingdom. Jesus is about to leave his disciples. Like the nobleman in the story, he has got to leave to receive his kingdom. Each aspect of the cross, the resurrection, his ascension, and then the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost, all of this is part of Jesus being crowned king. And like the nobleman in the story, he'll be away for a while. And whilst whilst he's gone for a while, he will return and take the land that is his kingdom. It now belongs to him. I wonder if you can remember back to your school days. Uh, it was always an eventful few minutes, wasn't it, when your teacher was called out of the classroom for whatever reason. And they would give you a stern instruction, be quiet, finish your exercises. And that never really happened, did it? There'd be pens, pencils getting lobbed around, people kicking each other's chairs. Maybe that was just me. It was absolute pandemonium. But the teacher would then come back in the room and it'd be dead silent again. Hands back on the table, concentrating. The teacher would assume control. Jesus is making it clear that whilst he, he is gone, the age we are in now may seem chaotic and that his kingdom isn't really 
fully here. It's, it's, it's messy and we seem to be on the losing side. But he's coming back and he will fully complete his kingdom over all creation. Let's get back into verse 14, however. And it's quite a shocking verse, isn't it? His subjects hated him and they explicitly reject him as king. And it's interesting when we read the Bible, we sometimes need to have uh, bifocal glasses, if you know what those are. You have the lens on the top where you can see long distance, but then you have smaller ones on the bottom so you can do closer reading. And similarly, this rejection that we're reading in verse 14 has a couple of meanings attached to it. So firstly, Jesus has in mind the immediate weeks that are just about to happen in Jerusalem. When he goes in there, he's proclaimed as a king. His disciples shout and sing that he is the king entering Jerusalem. But Jesus knows that he's actually walking to the gallows. He knows what's about to happen. The crowds take over and chapter 23 verse 18 you see rather than crying him as king they say away with this man and release to us Barabbas they rejected Jesus as their king see this parable is is prophetic it's talking about this moment that's about to happen in Jerusalem that's the short lens but with the long lens we can see that this is the pattern for history as well many people all of us, all people are subject to Jesus as our king. But so many reject him. We can see this in Scotland. You, you can find various research and statistics. And the long and short of it is the majority of people in Scotland do not follow Jesus or accept him as their king. And this is an important thing to realize in the present moment. Yes, parts of God's kingdom have begun. We're, we're gathering here in a church together. There's lots of other churches doing the same. So the kingdom has begun. But Jesus hasn't returned yet. And so the day when all people have to bend the knee to King Jesus, that's still in the future. But let's take encouragement from verse 15. Even in the parable, the rejection is futile. He is made king anyway. This should give us great assurance. Jesus may have looked defeated on Good Friday, may have looked like a failure, it may have looked that he was rejected as the king, but we know the story. Nothing can stop God's plan. Death could not hold Jesus. And even when we're told now that the church is irrelevant and we should just abandon ship, we have to know that Jesus is king anyway, no matter how it looks on the outside. We'll come back to the warning that is given to these people who reject Jesus at the end of this parable. But the majority of the story deals with the mission of the king. What the nobleman's servants are to do whilst he is gone. Let's look at verse 13. See, whilst the nobleman is away, we see that his servants have a job to do. I don't know if you have been watching The Apprentice recently. Uh, I've personally not. Recently, but I used to watch it a load. My mum's here. She could testify that I was a bit of an addict to The Apprentice. But it's a TV show where you'd get supposedly the brightest and best young business minds of the future competing against one another to get Lord Sugar, uh, get a job from him or an investment into their company that they want to start. And it's a little like the scene we have here. The ten servants are lined up, each given the same amount of money, 
a minor, three months' wages. And we're told that they had to put this money to work until they come back, until I come back. It's a straightforward assignment. Use the cash, invest it, and earn more for their master. This is the mission from the king. And again, Jesus is revealing something to his followers about what the kingdom is like. Whilst he is gone, his followers have a job to do. He's about to leave them. He's about to go to the cross. He'll return, but then he departs again. Can you imagine the emotional roller coaster that would have been? The despair at Jesus, your master, being crucified on a cross and dying and thinking that all hope is lost. To then the joy of him being raised to life again and appearing before you, for him to tell you, well, I'm actually going to leave again. You'd be confused. There'd be joy and then confusion. But while he's gone, the mission is very clear. Just before this parable, at the end of the story with Zacchaeus, we see what Jesus' mission is. He lays it out in verse 10 of chapter 19. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's no coincidence he tells them this and then tells them a story about what his servants are meant to do whilst he's gone. But how does this translate to Jesus' followers? What does the mina represent? How are they meant to use it? Is it for financial gain as well? Well, you'll be glad to know that I'm not here trying to drum up cash for a private jet for myself. But a lot of false teachers use this kind of thing for this. They think this kingdom is about the financial, about money and material wealth here and now. But the truth is, this mina that God has given us, that the master has given us, it represents absolutely everything we have. It includes our possessions and money. It includes our time and our capacities, our skills and vocations, our passions and talents. But it also includes our experiences in life, both the good things, but also the moments where we suffered. It includes our spiritual gifts, whether that is speaking or teaching or serving practically and caring. In the parable, we see that each servant is given the same mina. I don't think that means we're all given the same things, the same gifts to the same degree. It's wonderfully obvious that we're really different, and that's a really good thing. But we all have the gift of the Spirit. He comes to dwell in us and starts to rework our hearts into being more like the character of Jesus. A friend of mine put it this way. When, when the Spirit comes to live in us, he opens up a building site tossing out the old rubbish and beginning the renovations. All of us have that. All of us have that spirit if we trust in Jesus. And so all of us have a work to do to contribute to Jesus' mission, to seek and save the lost. In the last six months, as I've started working at Carubbers, I've been able to see this more and more, which is incredible to see. I get to see the pastors and the Bible class teachers and the Sunday school teachers faithfully proclaiming God's word to young people and to the congregation. I get to see that, but I also get to see behind the scenes in the day-to-day of the church. There's one lady in particular called Fiona. She does a ridiculous amount of just practical, behind-the-scenes, essential things that, if they didn't happen, 
So much of what we wanted to do is to get the gospel to people wouldn't happen. The cleaning, the cooking, the rearranging, the organizing. She uses her gifts, her mina, for the glory of the kingdom. We all have a part to play. That's a wonderful thing. So the question is, how will you use your mina, for want of a better word? So, we've only really teed up the rest of this story so far. But don't worry, the the story picks up its pace as well. From verse 15 to 27, we have the return of the king. The nobleman, despite opposition, he's made king anyway. And he returns to his land and he calls his servants in to see what they've done. This is that moment in The Apprentice again. The servants shuffle in, their their pie charts are printed out, PowerPoint's ready. They have a report to give to their master of what they've done. And so in verse 16, we have the first servant reporting back. And his numbers are looking very good. He made one mina into ten. 1,000% increase. That would look good, good on a graph, wouldn't it? And so the king rewards him with a great responsibility. Take charge of ten cities. And we see that this faithfulness in little leads to a reward of much. The king is pleased with his servant. He affirms him, well done, my good servant. The second servant, similarly, in verse 18, he does well. A 500% increase. And he gets to take charge of five cities. I don't think it's reading in this parable too much to say that in God's kingdom, if you obey him and use what he's given you for your mission of Jesus to seek and save the lost, then that faithfulness will be rewarded when he returns. I don't think we're told exactly what that reward looks like. But that is the motivation in our lives now to keep pressing on. The unseen stuff, the work we do for the gospel, that won't go unrewarded in the end. But we have one more servant, don't we? And you think that he'd be feeling rather sheepish. In verse 20, he comes in front of the, the, the master. And I wonder how you'd feel if you were him. If you'd seen what the first two servants had done with their minas, and you came with yours, how would you feel if you were him? Because look at what he's done. He's wrapped it up in a handkerchief. He's kept it safe and hidden, and he presents it back to the master. Why has he done that? What's his thinking? Look at verse 21. I was afraid of you, because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in, and reap what you did not sow. Well, here's our insight into his mind. He's afraid. He thinks that this master is hard, that he will take what he's not given him. He'll take the rewards when he hasn't actually done anything to earn it. That he reaps what he doesn't sow. Do you think that's a fair characterization of this master? Do you think this third servant is right? Well, in reality, I don't think it's true at all. This nobleman gave each of his servants the same thing. Three months wages, go and use it. He generously rewards his servants who obey him. And he's not just doing it for the money. He celebrates the servant in verse 17. Well done. He doesn't strike us as a harsh character, does he? 
this third servant has mischaracterized his master. He doesn't understand him. He doesn't know him. Instead, he's afraid of him. And he believes completely untrue things about his master. I wonder if that kind of lack of knowing God stops us from doing things or taking risks for God's purposes as well. Perhaps our default when we receive some money is to shuffle it away into a savings account instead of thinking maybe we could use some of this for a gospel initiative. Maybe there's a missionary that needs it. Maybe there's something at church that we want to start. Maybe we're too worried about uh, what sorts of people we let into our homes. We care more about the carpet than the outcasts. It could be that we're too afraid what people may think of us if we try to share the gospel with them. I remember as a student at a conference, uh, there's a group of us discussing why we found it so difficult at times uh, to share the hope that we have in Christ with our friends. And I remember I was saying, uh, well, I just felt like I was going to mess it up. I'd say something wrong, that I'd put them off, and it'd just, it would just be a disaster. And one of the leaders, in a really godly way, called me out. He rebuked me in the most loving way possible. He said, Sean, that's a cop-out. I wanted to be like the third servant. Keep my head down, keep my mina safe and secret. Because I was afraid. Because I didn't really, didn't have a proper knowledge of God. Didn't, I didn't know him enough to know that that was not what I needed to do. I didn't need to be afraid. The more we know God, the more we understand his incredible sovereign power. That he is the one who opens blind eyes. It just helps us to remember that God's not sternly looking down at us. Instead, he's graciously involving us in his mission to seek and save the lost. He wants us to use everything we have to go on that kingdom manifesto of seeking and saving the lost. This is why knowing God, deepening a relationship with him, not just knowledge about him, that is what leads to real fruitfulness. This is, why I walk, this is why our walk with God matters. Our times alone in prayer or in the word. Our times with others in prayer or in the word. It also matters when we have those moments where we just have no time, no presence of mind to settle down and really go deep. But we can still pray in those chaotic pressure moments. Dependence on God can look like that too. In those moments where you have... Sheer desperation. You don't know what to do. You can depend on him. You can cry out to God. And that is a deepening relationship with him as well. In verse 22, though, we can't miss this important warning. The master judges the servant by his own words. He points out that he's too lazy to even be lazy and put the mina into savings to collect interest. And so this third servant loses what he has, and it's given to the one who has ten. In verse 25, the bystanders, they, they protest. They said, Lord, that guy already has ten. Then we have verse 26. To everyone who has, more will be given. But as the, for the one who has nothing, even what they will have, even what they have will be taken away. This verse can be a little bit puzzling, can't it? If the servants are followers of Jesus, if that's how we're meant to understand the parable, then this can't mean that he's lost his salvation. 
But I think it's an important warning and reminder that we all have to give an account for what we've done with our lives and what God has given us. If you flick to 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul helpfully reiterates this warning. This is what it says. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. See, whilst we are declared righteous and justified in God's eyes, he still wants to know what we've done with it, what we've done with our lives for him. Our salvation isn't under threat, but he's going to hold us to account for what we've done. Our works aren't what brings us into the household of the king. That's not in question here. We can see these servants are already belonging to God. They're already in the household of God. But the emphasis is on how if God has given us himself, an incredible thing, he's given us himself, then we're being urged to invest in fruitfulness for his kingdom. The more we lean into God, the more of him we get. The weight of the emphasis is on the first two servants. Lean into that and see the rewards. God will reward it on the last day. Verse 27 ends this parable in a shocking way. We've seen how the whole household of the king is dealt with when Jesus returns. And there's motivation and there's warning there. But in verse 27, it's a, a sobering and shocking finish. It's a warning to the enemies of the king. Those who stubbornly, continually, and finally reject Jesus as their king. Let's read it again, verse 27. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. It seems pretty barbaric, doesn't it? How could Jesus want that? Well, in the context of the story, this is how ancient kings would deal with rebels. So it fits with the context of the story. But we still ask the question, how could Jesus be anything like that? Well, if you cast your eyes to verse 41, you see that Jesus is getting no sadistic pleasure out of judgment. He looks at Jerusalem in verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. There's no pleasure in this. God is off, Jesus is offering this warning out of grace and mercy. We have to remember that God's judgment is his settled hostility to anything that is evil. He has to deal with it. And on the last day, that will include people who have chosen. They've walked right over the cross, passed it and ignored it and rejected it and chosen sin instead. It's a stern warning to Jerusalem itself because 20 to 30 years after this moment, Jerusalem is destroyed. Judgment comes on Jerusalem itself. Again, with those bifocal lens, that's the immediate context. But this is looking also to the judgment day in the end. It's a stern warning. But let me encourage you a little because Luke, the same writer of Acts, records 
what happens in Jerusalem after the, the Spirit comes on them. In Acts 2, Peter is preaching to the crowds and he tells them exactly what they've done, exactly who Jesus is. And he reaches his crescendo and he says, God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus you crucified. And you can imagine the people in the crowd realizing the weight of what they'd done. There would have been people in in the crowds that Peter was preaching to that also were there when they crucified Christ. And Luke tells us that they were cut to the heart and they, they asked Peter, what do we do? And he tells them, and happily they repent and they trust in Christ. That's what happens when the warning is heeded. Every time the warning of the gospel is thrown out, the life ring of repentance and forgiveness is thrown out too. Jesus told this story to take away confusion about what was about to happen. We are 2,000 years later, and I think we often get confused sometimes as well. What is the kingdom meant to be? What am I, how am I meant to be involved? What am I meant to do? Well, Jesus addresses everyone with this parable. If you love and follow him, then you are on board with his mission to seek and save the lost. Everything you have is, is God-given, and you can use it for his purposes. And one day he'll ask us, what have you done with it? What have you used for my, my kingdom? And for those who are, at the moment, enemies of Christ, then you'll be treated as a rebel when he returns. And if you're hearing this now, then it's not too late. Remember what happens in Acts chapter 2. There's still an opportunity to turn. Let's finish with just maybe 30 seconds or so, just thinking and reflecting. And let me give you two questions just to help you as you uh, meditate for a little while. Firstly, what has God revealed to you about himself this morning? What has he revealed to you about himself? And what will you go and do differently? How will you use your your mina, everything that you have, for Christ's mission to seek and save the lost? Father God, we praise you and thank you that you don't leave us confused. Lord, you've made it clear what this kingdom is to look like. We thank you that you comfort us and assure us of your return and you comfort and assure us by your presence in us, by your spirit. We thank you that you've not left us alone. Father God, we pray that you'll give us courage and heart in the face of what seems to be hostile and and, uh, shrinking church, Father, but we take confidence, Lord, that your mission doesn't stop. Death could not hold you. Angels and rulers and no powers, Father, can stop you. Lord God, we ask that you will help us to take comfort and peace And that your mission will become our own heartbeat 
that we will know that everything you've given us we can give you thanks for and be grateful for and use it for your kingdom. Help us to be aware of the places where this can be done. Help us to have a sensitive ear and a sensitive heart to seeing where the needs are. And Lord, that you will grow in us a compassionate heart like Christ. Not shirking the warning of judgment, but ever continually holding out the hope of forgiveness. In your name, Lord, we ask. Amen.